The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of Things Are About To Get Weird. This is a podcast dedicated to some of the most bizarre, strange but true stories you're ever likely to come across. From odd true crime tales to the paranormal and everything in between, including the subgenre today's story falls firmly into, which is unsolved mysteries. Well, at least that's the official categorization of this case. But as we'll find out, all may not be what it seems. This episode is going to be all about the mysterious disappearance of a couple named Bessie and Glenn Hyde. It was a story I'd never heard before, but if you're part of our free private discussion group on Facebook, you may have spotted that one of our wonderful members, Sarah, recently posted a link to an article about the case. And after I got about halfway through reading it, I just knew I had to cover it on the podcast and you'll understand why it's so intriguing. Just a quick warning that there is a very brief mention of someone taking their own life in this story, so please do be aware of that before we start. That said, let's get right on into it. In 1927, on a passenger ship making its way to Los Angeles, California, a young, free-spirited artist named Bessie Louise Haley met the man who was destined to become her husband, Glenn Rollin Hyde, who was seven years her senior. Glenn was originally from Twin Falls in the state of Idaho, and Bessie was from West Virginia, and by all accounts, it was pretty much love at first sight for the pair. Bessie and Glenn just clicked, and felt from their first meeting that their connection was something very special. There was a slight spanner in the works from the word go, though. Bessie was actually still married to her first husband, although they were separated and their divorce proceedings were underway. It wasn't until the next year that the divorce was finalised, and Glenn and Bessie wasted no time at all in taking their relationship to the next level. They got married just one day afterwards, in early April of 1928, and they set about creating their new life together. It seems that much of what they had in common centred around their love of adventure. Glenn was an experienced river boater and a boat builder who loved taking on rafting challenges. Over the years, he'd explored some of the quickest rapids in the United States and was always looking for a new and exciting experience when it came to his boating hobby. So, when it came time for the newlyweds to plan their honeymoon, Glenn decided it was the perfect opportunity to introduce Bessie to this world of river running that he found so thrilling. It was ideal timing too, as he had just finished work on a 20-foot-long boat that he had constructed from scratch. His plan was that this vessel would carry himself and his new wife down a key section of the Colorado River, which sounds like it would be nice and relaxing, but for what Glenn had planned, this couldn't be further from the truth. 
his vision for their honeymoon was that he and Bessie would set a new speed record for travelling by boat through the Grand Canyon. And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound like a very honeymoon-appropriate activity. It sounds like a lot of work and effort, and you'd definitely be right. But... At this time, a feat like this was something that could garner a person a huge amount of attention, and potentially even some prize money if they beat the current record. Only 45 people had ever completed the journey at the time, and of those 45, every single one of them had been a man. Meaning that if Bessie were to finish the challenge, she'd be the first woman to do so. It seems like their plan was to style themselves as this new power couple of the adventuring world, and make a future career out of sharing stories of their expeditions, which honestly sounds great. Plus, in terms of this as a honeymoon trip, As anyone who's been to the Grand Canyon will tell you, it is actually quite romantic. As part of my own honeymoon, my husband and I actually flew into the Grand Canyon in a helicopter, which was epic. So on a really personal level, I do understand the appeal. And so, on the 20th of October 1928... Bessie and Glenn set off down the Green and Colorado rivers, which marked the start of their mission. However... In order to maximise their chances of beating the speed record, the couple had chosen to make sure their boat was as light as possible. And as part of this, they decided not to wear life jackets. I'm sure I don't really need to point this out, but that was an incredibly dangerous move on their part, as safety should always be the number one priority for anyone undertaking a stunt like this. The reason we know they didn't have life preservers is because sometime into their journey, they realised they were so far ahead of schedule that they had time to make a quick stop on their route. This break would serve two purposes. Firstly, they could replenish their supplies, and secondly, they could meet up with renowned photographer and Grand Canyon resident Emery Kolb and his brother Ellsworth. By the time they stopped at the Kolb studio, they'd been in their boat for around 26 days, and they asked whether Emery would like to take their photograph to help document this moment in their voyage. It was during this meeting that the topic of their lack of life jackets was raised, and Emery warned them that it was really not a good idea. Although Glenn seemed pretty relaxed about it, Bessie appeared more worried. Nevertheless, once their impromptu photo shoot was over, the couple headed back out onto the river, supposedly accompanied by another photographer called Adolf G. Sutro, who apparently rowed with them in their boat for a few minutes. But tragically, the Kolb brothers and Sutro would later consider themselves to be the very last people to see Glenn and Bessie alive. It was still November when the newlyweds set back out on their journey down the river, and the weather was starting to turn very cold. This was something else that Emery had warned Glenn about, but once again he seemed to shrug off the photographer's concerns and insisted they would be just fine. But by December, when neither Glenn nor Bessie's families had heard from the couple, and they failed to arrive in California by the predicted time, those who knew them really started to panic. 
Emery Kolb was amongst those who had a bad, bad feeling that the Hydes may have got into difficulty, and many sources say it was himself and his brother who kicked off the search to try and find them. Emery chartered a small plane and instructed the pilot to follow the river as best he could through the canyons, whilst those on board kept a close eye out for any sign of Glen and Bessie, or their boat. And sadly, it wasn't long before they found what they were looking for, at least in part. Just 46 miles, or around 74 kilometres from the mouth of the Grand Canyon, the search party spotted an empty boat floating near the shore. As they were able to get closer and inspect it, they immediately began to notice some strange details. There didn't look to be any huge, noticeable damage to the small vessel, and the hide's belongings all looked to be arranged neatly inside. It really didn't appear that any kind of struggle or disaster had taken place. It was as though the occupants of the boat had simply vanished. Amongst the items left behind were clothing and food, as well as Bessie's journal, which offered up some vital information regarding their last known movements. It seems as though the entries in the journal went all the way up until the 30th of November, before they abruptly stopped, and the last known place Bessie had described was Diamond Creek around 12 miles from where their deserted boat was eventually discovered. There was nothing in her writings that raised any red flags, and she'd described how they'd already made it through some particularly treacherous rapids, and everything appeared to be on track. A camera was also found in the boat, which contained photos of their travels, with the very last picture traced back to a spot it's believed they would have been in around the 27th of November. But despite extensive searches of the area, which lasted for months in total, not a single trace of the couple was found. Now, when I first started reading about this case, I got to this point and thought, gosh, that's awful, how terrible for the newlyweds to have never been found, either alive or sadly deceased. It's a mysterious tale without a doubt, especially considering the condition their boat was found in. But it was what happened next that really left me baffled. And I have a lot of thoughts on these next twists and turns, which I'll get into at the end after I've laid out what took place. So, in the decades that followed Glenn and Bessie's disappearance, the trail went completely cold. And although their story captivated the public's attention at the time, especially due to the fact that they were a couple in their 20s and this tragedy had occurred on their honeymoon, it was nowhere near as enduring as, say, the later case of Amelia Earhart. But over 40 years later, in 1971, interest in the Hyde's unsolved case was sparked once again, under the strangest of circumstances. 
That year, there was a commercial boat trip taking place through the Grand Canyon, with a number of passengers on board. I can only assume that the excursion was spread over at least a couple of days, because it included an overnight stop with a dinner laid on for the passengers that took place around a campfire. At this dinner, amongst the group sat around talking, was an elderly woman named Elizabeth Cutler. The tour guide, who had been informing the participants about different aspects of the area's history, began to tell them the story of Bessie and Glenn's disappearance, and as he was doing so, Elizabeth spoke up to make a shocking confession. She revealed to the group that she was, in fact, Bessie Hyde. When the stunned tour guide pressed her on the matter, she began to speak of how she had killed her husband Glenn after becoming tired of his abusive treatment of her during their journey, and escaped to start a new life for herself. Elizabeth said that she had hiked to Peach Springs, Arizona on foot, before catching a bus back towards the east coast of the country to make a fresh start. On the surface, this all seems a bit far-fetched, but the tour guide was perturbed enough that once the trip had ended, he spoke out about what Elizabeth had said, and his account of the strange evening around the campfire reached the ears of a reporter. It's alleged that this reporter then managed to track Elizabeth down, but when they did so, she flat out refused to repeat her confession and told them that she'd never even heard of Bessie Hyde. Regardless, all of this had really piqued the interest of a number of researchers who started to dig a little further into the claim. I tried to find out a bit more about who exactly these researchers were, but there wasn't much more said about them, so I can only assume that they were either people from the adventuring world, or possibly armchair detectives with an interest in unsolved mysteries. Either way, it was noted that many of Elizabeth's physical characteristics including her facial features and general build, were really quite similar to Bessie's. But frustratingly, probably due to her lack of cooperation, no one was ever able to definitively prove that Elizabeth was the young adventurer who had been presumed dead for over four decades. Nevertheless, this incident served to reignite the fascination with the Hyde's case, although it would be almost 20 more years before yet another bizarre twist in this tale would emerge. And this is arguably even stranger. In 1992, a renowned Grand Canyon river rafting guide named Georgie Clark passed away. She was very elderly when she died, but her death was a great loss for those close to her. After her passing, her loved ones began to sort through the items left behind in her home, a place which, by all accounts, had not been all that familiar to them when Georgie was alive. Some friends who said they had known her for decades had never before set foot inside her house, making this a huge element of her life that she was very secretive about. And when they eventually did get to step over the threshold, what they discovered forced them to question how well they knew their companion at all. Amongst Georgie's personal effects was her birth certificate, 
and when her loved ones got hold of it and took a closer look, they were bewildered to find out that Georgie's birth name had actually been Bessie de Ross. On its own, this is a little odd, but Bessie wasn't a particularly unusual first name to have at that time, and if this was all that had been uncovered, I'm sure the incident wouldn't have gone much further than being discussed amongst Georgie's inner circle. But in amongst her important documents was another significant piece of paperwork, a marriage certificate. And who did it belong to? Bessie and Glenn Hyde. How weird is that? And it gets even stranger, because despite Georgie's possession of these two documents, as well as other items considered unusual for her, including an old pistol, no further formal investigation into whether she could have been the missing Bessie Hyde was carried out. In the years since, several writers and historians have taken a deeper look at the case, but they've all concluded the same thing, that Georgie couldn't have been Bessie. Why? Because, as I mentioned earlier, Georgie was a very well-known figure in the river rafting world, and her early life was quite extensively documented. Photos of her from when she was younger looked nothing like Bessie Hyde, and there was just too much evidence about her childhood showing that they could not have been the same person. The whole situation was kind of inexplicable, and people were left with so many questions, but it appears that the general consensus is that Georgie wasn't Bessie. Now, I know we're talking a lot about Bessie here, but this case does have a further weird twist that concerns Glenn too, although it is still centred around the theory that he did not live to see the end of 1928. And at this point, we bring the photographer Emery Kolb back into the frame. Shortly after Emery passed away in 1976, his possessions and home were being sorted through when something disturbing was uncovered. Human remains were found on his property in the form of a complete skeleton with a bullet inside the skull. Of course, those who discovered the bones immediately jumped to the conclusion that they could have belonged to Glenn Hyde. After all, Emery was one of the last people to see him before he vanished, and this would play perfectly into the idea that Glenn had indeed perished whilst Bessie survived and had fled to another part of the country. At first glance, the skeleton appeared to be a match for Glenn. This unfortunate soul would have been the same height as the missing riverboater, and around the same age too, but this new evidence was not destined to provide any answers for the Hyde's loved ones, as forensic analysis on the remains carried out at a later date showed that the man had actually died in around 1972, so it simply couldn't have been Glenn. As an additional strange footnote to this incident though, in 2008, a collection of old photographs were donated to the Grand Canyon Museum, which forced a new perspective to be considered in the case of this unidentified gunshot victim. Through these photos, 
a retired Grand Canyon National Park investigator called Joe Sumner, managed to link the skeleton with a report of a man who'd taken his own life in this way back in 1933. I can only assume that a clear photo of this man showing his height was amongst those in the collection, and through analysis it was proven to be a match to the remains from Emery Kolb's land. Why Emery had the remains is a whole different debate, although a suggested explanation hinges around the fact he had served a stint as a county coroner jury representative, but still very weird and also very sad, not to mention completely conflicting in terms of all of the dates mentioned. And once again, it leads us no closer to working out what on earth happened to Bessie and Glenn. Before we get on to my thoughts, it's important to look at the theory that's most frequently put forward around what the couple's fate could have been, and in many ways it absolutely makes sense. The journey they embarked on was without a doubt very dangerous, especially considering they had chosen not to wear life jackets, or take with them any other safety equipment which could have added weight to their boat. Many of the articles and reports on the mystery heavily suggest that an accident is the most likely explanation. Perhaps they were both flung from the vessel and were swept away in the rapids, pulled far away from where their boat was found. Maybe one fell overboard and the other jumped in the water to try and rescue them, and both got into difficulty before drowning or succumbing to hypothermia. Perhaps their bodies were never found because of the animal activity in the river, if you see what I mean. It's easy to understand why this idea is so widely accepted, and I personally do think it's a real possibility too. The Grand Canyon is so vast and you're totally at the mercy of nature, so it's clear to see how something like this could have happened. Plus, it's more comfortable to accept than the alternative. The consensus on the secondary theory seems to be that Bessie could have killed Glenn, perhaps after an argument or in self-defence or because she'd begun to regret marrying him. This is all speculation, by the way. I'm definitely not trying to present any of these ideas as facts. But this would then play into the suggestions of the two women thought to be the real Bessie later down the line, presuming that one of them was actually her, or at least connected to her. And here we get to the thoughts I've been mulling over since looking into this story. First of all, I so wish that Elizabeth Cutler's claim had been investigated much more deeply. If she really was Bessie, it would make sense that she kind of shut herself down after that initial confession and refused to talk any more about it. After all, it would mean that she'd implicated herself in the murder or at least the disappearance of her husband and would have backtracked after regretting blurting out the truth. 
it would also make sense that she'd gone on this Grand Canyon River tour trip in a group to revisit or face up to what she'd done. An emotion got the better of her and she couldn't help but confess after returning to the scene of the crime. Again, I'm absolutely not implying this is true and based on her already being elderly in the 1970s, Elizabeth will no longer be with us and can't ever confirm or deny the facts anyway. It's just something I've been pondering. But my thoughts on the Georgie Clark situation are what have really kept me awake at night. I seriously wonder whether Georgie and Bessie could have known each other. It's totally feasible that they could have met prior to the Hyde's honeymoon trip, considering that Glenn belonged to that same world of river rafting enthusiasts as she did. Could Bessie have escaped after killing Glenn and gone to Georgie for assistance? Or, on the other hand, if they were strangers, could Georgie also have been rafting in the area at the time, come across a distressed Bessie and decided to help her? If so, this could help explain why Georgie had that key possession of the newlyweds, the marriage certificate. Maybe Bessie entrusted her with some important documents before starting her new life. Again, I know it sounds far-fetched, but I think I've become so hooked on this idea because of the marriage certificate. It's one of the strangest details in this entire tale for me. An original marriage certificate isn't the kind of thing you can just casually acquire. The only ones who should really have access to it are the people named on it. I personally don't think Georgie was Bessie. There's too much evidence to prove otherwise. But I've really started to believe they could have known each other and that Georgie could have had a much deeper insight into the couple's fate than she ever revealed. Again, I can't prove this and it's just my opinion, but there's something about it that feels quite compelling. I do worry that given how much time has passed, we'll likely never know the truth behind the Bessie and Glenn Hyde mystery. Unless, of course, some concrete forensic evidence turns up in the future. But what we do know is that, due to the most tragic of circumstances, their names will forever be associated with the feat they hoped would secure their place in the history books. I have a sneaking suspicion that you will all have lots of your own thoughts to share on this case, and I for one can't wait to know your take on it. I really do love to hear your theories, especially when it comes to these unsolved mystery episodes. I always end up having some really interesting conversations with you all, and there are always points that are brought up that I'd never even considered to. Do stick around to find out about all of the ways you can get in touch. I always give you a quick rundown at the end of our episodes. But before we get to that, it's time for that part of the show where I recommend to you something wonderfully strange that I've been enjoying. So here is our outro feature, Weird Media. By now, if you're a regular listener, 
You'll know that I love Halloween, as in the celebration that's observed on the 31st of October. But what you might not know, although I'm sure it won't come as any surprise, is that I also love Halloween, as in the films. So the past few years have been a real treat for me, as we've had three new movies, starring several of the original cast members, including Jamie Lee Curtis. Now, I know some people have been critical of the recent trilogy, but I absolutely loved each instalment. They have felt like proper treasure to me. And I think one of the main reasons I enjoyed them so much is because even though between the original 1978 film and the first of the more recent trilogy in 2018, there have been countless sequels and spin-offs, the recent trilogy is meant to be a direct sequel of the very first Halloween movie. So the idea is that you can sort of disregard everything that came in the middle and just take those four films, 1978 Halloween, 2018 Halloween, Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends as the whole story. Now, not only do I love these films because I'm a huge horror fan, but there is a very unique crossover with another of my interests with the Halloween films too. My guilty pleasure in life is that I'm obsessed with the Real Housewives franchise. And in particular, I'm a big fan of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And one of the stars of that show is Kyle Richards, who, as you may know, is a former child actor. And what was one of her most famous roles as a kid? She was the little girl, Lindsay Wallace, in the original Halloween film. Kyle actually reprised the role for Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends, and she did a really brilliant job of it, in my opinion. It was so cool to see. So if you love the original movie and you're intrigued about the newer ones, I would definitely recommend watching them all again in the order I've mentioned. There are so many great callbacks to the original in the later three, and to me, the whole vibe was spot on. I would love to know if any of you you agree with me or even if you disagree. A healthy film-based debate is always fun, so do feel free to let me know. Right, time for some super quick thanks to the sources which helped in my research for this episode. There was a 2001 article from the LA Times by Anne Jepenga that was great. The historycollection.com piece that Sarah originally sent me that was from September 2018 by Shannon Quinn. The website explorethecanyon.com, which is run by the Grand Canyon Visitor Centre. That was amazing. We had an article on how stuff works by the writer Kate Kirshner. And finally, there was a brilliant piece on Mental Floss by Michelle Debzak from November 2022. As I say, please do drop me a line and let me know your thoughts on this story. On Facebook, there's both the private discussion group and the main podcast page too. Just search for Things Are About To Get Weird over there and you'll find both of those. Over on Instagram, which I also love, our handle is at Things Get Weird Podcast. And on Twitter or 
next. We are at About to Get Weird. Our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. And I'm currently still taking submissions for our Halloween special. So do feel free to tell me about your own strange but true experience if you would like me to read out your email in that episode. Finally, our Patreon and merch pages are linked in the show notes as always. Thank you, as always, for being here today. And a big thank you to Sarah as well for letting me know about this story. I also really appreciate your star ratings on Spotify and written reviews on Apple Podcasts too. If you've enjoyed this episode and fancy leaving one today, they really do help to support the podcast. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. 